Twin spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. Hello and welcome to the 94th annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm joined by my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. It is officially hump day and it's even more special because it is inauguration day and it's Amazing to see the comments being like, wow, uh, seeing a boring president give a speech is actually so refreshing. Yes, indeed. But uh, what I wanted to talk about today, obviously, I didn't even know this was going on, but apparently Q was telling everybody today like some big, massive, world-changing event was going to happen. And it didn't happen, and now I'm seeing those type of people, like, freaking out. They don't know what to do with themselves. Have you seen any of this? No, I haven't. So there's literally posts like, Q, Q, when's it going to happen? When is the date changing? People are, like, freaking out. And then I'm seeing other posts, oh, my God, we've just been duped for the last four years because they thought Trump was going to do something, and he just left, you know. He pardoned like all them financial criminals and then he just (laughs) fucking left. Yeah. So in his speech before he jumped on a plane back to Florida, his ending was, I hope you all have a really nice life. He's like, I love you and I hope you all have a nice life. Holy shit. That's basically a, well, thanks everybody. Bye. You didn't elect me again. So bye. I'm done. Yeah. I think they're feeling really uh, betrayed by, uh, him all of a sudden that i mean that's the impression i'm getting yeah so the people who followed his advice to go storm the capitol building he basically threw them under the bus a week later in his speech i guess he really didn't want to give that speech but his people told him he had to i'm surprised he had any people left to tell him anything but i mean it is a really great day gotta fucking congratulate the 45th president of the united states 46th 46th no no you got to say 45th because ah. we technically didn't have one for four years. So <laughs> we just had a fucking like a madman. You know what I thought was pretty cool that I think is kind of under the radar. So the black police officer that was tricking him into going away from where all the, like the senators and stuff were. Did you yeah. see that guy? They, no, I didn't. So hey, you heard about him though, right? I The only cop that they were really talking about was the one that was in the chamber hall. And he was telling the people not to sit in the chair, and they weren't listening to him. No, so there was a there's a black uh, security guard or police officer, one of the two, and he was purposely acting like "Don't come this way," and he was leading him away from the chambers. And okay, so he's obviously a hero. They brought him in to escort Kamala Harris to the inauguration. Oh, that's nice. So that was, I thought that was pretty cool. That guy's uh, fucking awesome, obviously. And I thought that was really, really nice of him. Now, 
I saw on the I just got home not that long ago, and I'm seeing on the news there's a million fucking bands coming to play. I'm like, what? What is all this? There's a million bands coming to play. Well, like at the White House. I don't. I don't know if they're doing like concerts at a remote location. Like they have Tim McGraw coming up, Foo Fighters coming up, goddamn whatever. All these random bands playing, and there's like a speech coming from Tom Hanks. What is all this? Does this usually happen? Well, they might be playing remotely. So, yeah, there is. Usually the inauguration is a pretty big happening. Like there's a ball. There's a concert situation. There's a parade. Obviously, like the parade is going to be happening over like the entire country. It's going to be like a remote thing. But, yeah, I imagine that bands are just going to play wherever they're at. They're going to just play for a camera and then have it stream out so i didn't realize so many bands play at the inauguration but it was funny because on <laughs> the between the bumbles that came out on today on the wednesday i was literally making fun of the foo fighters for being the only band that ever plays on snl and now they're playing on the inauguration day oh yeah <laughs> I, well i mean i think that snl was one of the first like venues that gave Nirvana like a really big stage. I'm I'm not exactly sure. The Foo Fighters, the lead singer, was the drummer for Nirvana, right? Yep, yep, Dave Growl. Dave Growl, yeah. And I think that's kind of why maybe he keeps doing SNL over the years. It could be. It was just a joke because I feel like every time I've watched SNL, which is like three times in the last five years, that it's always the Foo, Foo Fighters, Fighters playing. <laughs> yeah, I know. They they are on there quite a bit, but yeah. <laughs> just like, like they're literally the Alec Baldwin of SNL. Isn't he like a returning guest all the time? Well, yeah. Well, he played Trump, so he was on there every single week. But uh, now he's done with the show, so. Well, uh, you know they're still going to be playing Trump on there. Yeah, but I'm guessing that they're going to have someone else play it. They're probably going to get a cast member. They really should have had a cast member playing Trump, but I mean, they liked Alec Baldwin did such a good job and it got them, you know, every time he did his impression, it got more viewers. So, okay. Final question before we get in here, now that Trump and his family doesn't have any protection, is there going to be charges against them? Well, it depends on which court. So there's obviously he's getting impeached, you know, in the Senate and the New York judicial like the whatever the prosecutors in new york are coming after him he's also supposedly got a lawsuit from a woman who claimed that trump raped her in a dressing room in the past he's got that to worry about too so it depends on like what court which where it's coming from but yeah he's going to be spending the next months years in a courtroom so well i thought of ivanka and jared had some shit on them too but i i don't really know i thought the ivanka had like some i don't know fraud or something i i don't I, you can't even keep up with it i have no idea but uh yeah i have no idea but anyway uh let's get in this bad boy phil here i'm i'm looking forward to this episode so what are you what are you covering today all right so let me get started here a fear of death and a lack of understanding of what happens to a person's as they come to the end of their life worries every single person on earth at one point or another and may explain why the phenomenon of the near-death experience is such a popular topic in books magazines 
television, movies, and all other media. With subscribers to the theory searching for answers to the questions that they have about really important things to them. What has happened to lost loved ones? Uh, what if maybe even will happen to themselves? Right. Between that for humanity's greatest question or uh, where we came from, one of the two. So, yeah, I don't know. This is uh, something, you know, unfortunately, every single person on the planet's going to have to face sooner or later. But uh, we don't really know what's going to happen. Definitely. Minus Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, probably Elon Musk, who I'm guessing are going to get their memories and livelihoods downloaded <laughs> into a computer. They're going to get the little, um, what the hell is that Netflix show, Carbon Effect or whatever, where, oh. they, where they have the little chips in their neck with all their memory on it and shit. They just download it into a new body every time <laughs> they have an accident. And then, of course, there's you know, Hillary Clinton, Barry Satiro, they're all reptilians, so they live 600 years, so. I, uh, speaking of Bezos, actually, I saw, I subscribed to the Weekly World News Instagram page, and they had mm -hmm. Bezos currently in hot dispute over, um, rights to the Amazon River. Oh, like he's trying suing to take him. it up? <laughs> yeah, he's trying to sue him <laughs> for the name rights. I imagine. <laughs> so, these questions about death and the afterlife have puzzled theologians and philosophers for millennia, though the scientific community has been slow to take an interest and hasn't really given the idea of studying these claims much thought, with scientists first looking into the topic in the 19th century and mainstream study really not coming until the middle of the 20th century. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy to think about that. Is Was it just the fact that everyone assumed, based on their religious beliefs, that's what happened when you died, instead of them looking at it a little more closely in the last, you know, 200 years? Well, a lot of people really didn't talk about their near-death experience, and the, they've done a kind of bit, a bit of study into this. People were worried that anyone that they had told of their the going to heaven, basically, or dying, the afterlife. They were worried that people would think that they were either had gone crazy or had some kind of mental defect as a result of them dying. You have to remember, people knew next to nothing about the brain right. until maybe the 19th century. Right. Yeah, I remember. I uh, <laughs> I don't know where I heard it, but where that, I think it was like in the early 20s, maybe late 1800s, <laughs> if, if a woman had like some sort of mental illness or whatever and the doctors would like masturbate him. Do you remember that? Like that was mental health help back then. That was that was called hysteria. Yeah. If they had hysteria, they thought they would need they just needed an orgasm. Yeah, to like put them right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that'll probably help anybody, but <laughs> it's such a <laughs> weird I mean, that's such honestly, a weird treatment. Honestly, it can't hurt. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't imagine you go to a doctor and be like, have you tried going home and jerking off? Like, I don't I don't know if that's exactly going to solve the problem. But uh, but yeah, mental health was kind of a uh, uh, a bit of a in turmoil back then, to say the least. Yeah. Jimmy Wisman and James Patrick Gallo call it cheer up, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. First off. I'm going to tell you about some of the big names in the study of near-death experiences. So, born June 30th, 1944. So, be careful. He is a boomer. Yeah, so he's going to be writing you some hate mail. Definitely. 
Raymond Moody, philosopher, psychologist, physician, and author, has written many books on the subject of the afterlife, including Life After Life, the 1975 book in which Raymond Moody coined the phrase near-death experience. So he, he, he made up this phrase, huh? Yes. Well, yeah. So because it's in a book and no one was really saying it before, you can definitely say that he is the one who coined the phrase, like came up with it. I kind of wish if I had an ultimate life goal, it would be that I have a, a coin a phrase. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, but then you would spend the rest of your life convincing everyone around you that you coined the phrase. <laughs> that you you would be a firster. You'd be like, oh, I, no. People didn't drink Pabst Blue Ribbon before me. Like, true. I was doing it before it was cool. True. That's very true. I want to ask you, too. When is the cutoff for boomers? I thought they were World War II and post. 46 to 64. Or... Oh. 44 to 64, okay, something so like that. He's like first gen then. Yeah, he is one of the first boomers. Okay, all like, right. It. I wonder, it's possible that his dad came back from wherever he was stationed and just knocked his mom up right then and there, the night he got home, if his dad was you know off to war. Because June of 44 is pretty much the end of, you know, I mean, you're... You're really getting coming up close on the end of the war in Europe. I mean, obviously, war in Pacific lasted till 45, but. Right. I mean, it's, I guess it's such a weird thing to think about, like the boomers in general, where it's everyone's returning from war. There's so many dead people, like ridiculous amount of dead people. And uh, they just instantly start like repopulating, I guess, starting families and all that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a natural, really just this boom in having just a ton of children, you know, really overpopulation is really bad for like, if you if you want to become a landowner, or start a business, do something like that. It's just like with the the plague back in the 1300s, after the plague was over, all of a sudden, there was all of this cheap land freed up. And the feudal system kind of died out because the lords there was so few people to work the lands. The lords were actually having to start trying to entice peasants away from other lords. So they would have to pay them, which kind of like killed the feudal system. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know what? I got one more quick tangent before you continue. So I actually, <laughs> I got in a conversation with my mom, right? And she's like, you know, us growing up on as country kids, I guess, whatever, you're kind of just expected to work. And I'm like, she was talking about her childhood. And I'm like, Mom, you do realize that your parents came from a generation that they had kids not because they wanted kids necessarily. They had kids so they could have workers. You yeah. Do, like, I had to inform her, like, that was the mentality back then. Like, you got to have as many kids as you can, number one, so because you don't know how many are going to die. And number two, yep. so you have farm hands. <laughs> like, it's <Definitely>. just. <laughs> Like, I don't think she realized that. Yeah. Well, you got to think, oh, you know what's the perfect number of kids to have? Five. So we're going to have to have 11. Yeah. Probably about six are going to die within the first <laughs> couple of months, if not years. Yeah. We need so. to be happy. We don't live in a world like that anymore because yeah. our kids are just, I don't know, what do you have? A 30% chance of making it? Oh, back then? Yeah. Uh, I think it was honestly really close to 50-50, whether okay. a kid would live or die to his adulthood. Yeah, so, I mean, thankfully, for the most part, that's 
pretty much eliminated. Yeah. Well, I mean, in in modern, you know, civil, like the first world countries, yeah. there's still a really bad life expectancy of in the third world countries, babies born. But yeah, right, different, right. different episode. Right. So while at the University of Virginia, Raymond Moody would meet the man that started his interest in the topic of the afterlife. Dr. George Ritchie, a psychiatrist working at the university, told Moody of his own near-death experience, which had occurred when he was pronounced dead at an army hospital for nine whole minutes before eventually being revived. This happened to him at the age of 20. Ritchie would co-author a book in 1978 about the experience in which he claims to have had an out-of-body experience in which he met Jesus and traveled with him through different dimensions of time and space. Okay, interesting. So Jesus and space. All right. Yep. I mean, that's a topic that has yet Passion of Christ in space. I would pay money for that movie, but uh but yeah, I don't know. This is you know, here okay, so let me follow the timeline. So Moody started researching it and then I suppose his research caught on and then Dr. Ritchie kind of teamed up with him and be like, This happened to me? Is that kind of the series of events that happened? Well, Raymond Moody wasn't really thinking about the afterlife at all until he met Dr. George Ritchie okay. at the University of Virginia. It was when Dr. Ritchie told Moody of his near-death experience that Raymond Moody became interested in the topic. And gotcha. then after the success of Raymond Moody's book, that's when George Ritchie had his own book kind of put out in 1978, just a few years later. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. I gotcha. I'm following you. So Dr. Ritchie would have a long and distinguished career until retirement in 1992, eventually passing away at his Irvington, Virginia home in 2007 at the age of 84. One of his uh, quotes that he had from his book, death is nothing more than a doorway, something you walk through. Okay. You need like a heavy metal guitar riff right here, but uh, it's yep. a, that's a delectable quote. I love that quote. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of just, like an emo kid sitting in their room <laughs> writing in their poetry book. <laughs> Shut up, Dad. Death is nothing more than a doorway, something you walk through. All right, all <laughs> right, lit, Clyde. A lit cigarette in the ashtray. <laughs> Drinking Clemento. <laughs> After meeting George Ritchie, Raymond Moody would take an academic interest in the afterlife and begin interviewing others with their own stories and experiences finding many commonalities in what the interviewees were reporting to him. Moody's previously mentioned 1975 book, Life After Life, is a compilation of some of the stories that he had gathered from those experiencers. I mean, I don't know if you, you got like a sample of that book or anything, but I, I bet it's pretty interesting, to be honest with you, to hear about all the people's tales, like all the different experiences that they had because i had to have to imagine there's like a wide variety of different visions or whatever you want to call it that they had yeah you gotta think this book coming out was pretty wild too because the idea of near-death experiences are nothing new to us you know we've had 50 60 years of these kind of stories coming out but this was really the first book of its kind there wasn't a whole lot of academic interest in this and there wasn't at all any public interest moody was kind of the first one to really like jump on this unspoiled land really 
Mm, okay. Yeah, so yeah, I could see this kind of uh probably blew people's minds away then. Yeah, especially I mean the 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 60s, the late 60s, the 70s were kind of like this whole spiritual awakening thing. So he kind of jumped on this at the perfect time. Dude, I could just see a bunch of hippies like you go into a college dorm like you're a freshman there. Hey man, you have, you need to check out this book, Life After Life. It's going to blow your fucking mind, man. Like I could just see that happening. While they're all just fucking Roasted. blown away by ketamine and fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Life After Life is like the perfect title for like a daytime soap opera. Yeah, I it kind of sounds like a Celine Dion song <laughs> or something go. like that. I was pretty proud of myself at work. This song came on. I know I've heard it. And I was like, is this Jewel? And they're like, no, this isn't Jewel. And then they looked it up and it was Jewel. I don't know how I knew a Joel song, but somehow I did. Yeah, you looked at the window, saw the plants start wilting, and thought to yourself, <laughs> is this Jewel? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm sure she's great. <laughs> so another interest that Moody had taken up was in ancient Greek temples, specifically one named the Necromantium, which was an ancient temple devoted to Hades and was set at a location believed to be the entrance to the underworld. This was a place in which a person could actually speak to a deceased loved one. Moody would practice this form of communication with the dead, uh, with his own basic invention, a room known as a psychomantium. Uh, This was a small, enclosed area set up with a comfortable chair, dim lighting, and a mirror that was angled just so that it would not reflect anything but darkness. And this mirror was used really intended to communicate with the spirits of the dead. Okay, so I'm kind of wondering, this mirror that only reflects darkness, how can you even tell anything's in it? I think it's just one of those things where if you sit in this room long enough, you're going to fucking see something. Right. Eventually. I mean, it's kind of like the whole, we talked about it before with the, uh, Jimmy Dar was telling us about (laughs) sitting in a dark room with a wooden chair that has no nails in it. Eventually, you're going to start fucking hearing something if you sit in there long enough, you know? Well, yeah, because you're in a dark fucking room and you start getting paranoid and you start seeing shit in the darkness. Yeah, exactly. That's the same thing with this mirror is what I think is actually I want to put a call out because I'm sure we have uh, Wiccan and Wicca and witchcraft listeners and stuff like I want to know if this is a real thing. Because he said, that's what, I don't remember which branch he was practicing, but um, he claims that's how you can, if you have, what did he tell me? If you have a spirit attached to you, that's how you communicate with it by apparently finding a chair that was built in 1742 and sitting in it um, because it can't have any, any metal attached to it. I'm pretty sure that when we were in high school, our group of friends had a leech spirit that was attached to us. So... (laughs) He would just be there wherever you were at. I'll never forget when you called. We were talking on the phone because you kind of hung out with him after I moved away or whatever. And yeah, you were like, yeah, they they're in like this online chat room. This is in like 2004. And, uh, you know, the chat rooms weren't exactly like Facebook. And yeah. you were like, yeah, they're they're doing some online binding spell to an evil witch in fucking the middle of nowhere, Iowa. And I'm just like. What is going on here? Who is that? You told me Jimmy was doing that uh, in their little coven or whatever. 
You don't remember any of this? No. Yeah, you you told me like he they had like an online community and one of the witches was like casting bad spells or something. So the rest of them over the internet did like a binding spell on her. <laughs> it you, sounds like a bad D&D fucking dude. Crew. I remember I remember the witch. She was uh probably the biggest charlatan I've ever met in my life, but <laughs> I don't remember the coven or the internet community. Yeah. Honestly, if it didn't happen 25 minutes ago, I probably don't remember. Yeah, it, I was going to so. say that was we were 18 years old, so yeah, that was it's have you ever thought like literally next year we're going to be out of high school almost as long as we were in school? school. Yeah, like or in school in general. Cuz we'll be out of high school 18 years almost. Yeah, honestly, it's it's good that I don't remember any of it cuz I'm pretty sure. Well, I mean, the parties were fun and I remember those, but the mind numbing boringness of especially back then living out in the country with no internet. Oh, that was fucking terrible. <laughs> oh, I can still remember opening up a porn picture and it took like you're like, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna see this naked woman here and about twenty minutes later it'll finish loading. I'll come back then. <laughs> <laughs> and then it would end up having advertisements over her tits. I yeah. remember that. Like, yeah. damn it, this took twenty five minutes to fucking load. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't have anything to do with near-death experiences, but that is waiting for porn to load. You Zoomers out there, you don't know the pain. You don't know the pain. Definitely. So Dr. Moody would write a book, Reunions, Visionary Encounters with Departed Loved Ones, on that subject of speaking with the dead. Now, I really should mention that Dr. Moody did experience a lot of criticism throughout his career. Basically, his research methods weren't what you would call impartial. He kind of took in every story and just believed it wholeheartedly. He never really took into account any factors other than he believed that these people had a real near-death experience and they actually had an out-of-body experience, actually spoke with beings, kind of really bad pseudoscience. He didn't take into account the fact that they might have had some mental trauma or physical trauma after whatever put them into that near-death experience, like the state. He also didn't take into account that they may have been in a like intoxicated or drugged state at the time, too. Yeah. So really a lot of his methods kind of got, you know, whipped up. In 1991, he had their near-death experience of his own when he attempted suicide. And he talks about that in the book Paranormal. He claims it was because of an undiagnosed thyroid condition, which affected his mental state. But he did also admit that his family had him hospitalized, uh, put in a mental hospital because of his work with mirror gazing. So, I mean, he's kind of the granddaddy of this research, but he also did have a lot of criticism. So, yeah, he I mean, from the sounds of it, if I'm being truthful, he took that step in the paranormal world that I despise, and that's when you lose focus on what you're supposed to be or what you initially were looking for, and you just Mm. kind of let the wild side go. You don't look at anything objectively anymore and don't try to create a balance between believability and just straight out going nuts, you know? And that's kind of, I don't know 
this is kind of something I've always pondered. Do so many people fall for, fall for this trap simply because they, I don't know, get it? Their their ego takes over and they just kind of are like, I can't be wrong. So I'm just going to, anything I say has to be true. So I, you know what I mean? Well, the problem is if you're a scientist, you are searching for an answer. So you take the clues that you find, you run your little tests, you do your little thought experiments, you take all of that and you go through the steps to find the answer. The problem with pseudoscience is you start with the answer and then next you go on looking for facts that support your answer. So instead of a straight line, it's a circle where you just basically keep filling, you know, fulfilling your answer and then kicking out all of the facts that don't support the answer. So that is an excellent point, actually, because that is exactly what he's doing, isn't it? He's just accounting for the things that validate his beliefs instead of looking at anything objectively. Yeah. I mean, it's the good and the bad of what he did, because you got to realize pseudoscience is terrible for, you know, if you want to be a real scientist, you want to actually do the work and, you know, prove that the earth is flat. That's great. But do the real science. The problem is no real scientist is going to start in a field like near-death experiences. No one's going to take the risk. Like a real scientist wouldn't take the risk to their prestige, their career, among other scientists, among the critics, whatnot. So it took him to kick the door open. But really, once he took the first step, he really should have just gotten out of the way because he kind of muddied it up when he took that first step. But opening the door was the good thing that he did. But I... That's the thing. Honestly, I love when, you know, science starts to look at the things that we just don't understand. But again, you have to, I I don't know. There's like a balance. I always feel there's a balance. Honestly, for my, like myself, I'm obviously not a scientist or or anything like that. But if you would have asked me the subjects we talk about back when I was 20 years old, I would have been like, probably believed most of it, especially the paranormal stuff but now as an older person and we look into this stuff and I get a little more cynical about it but there's still pieces of the paranormal that are unexplained but there's a lot of it that's just like you're just being silly and not looking at what could possibly be the answer you're just looking at what you want the answer to be yeah two things with that our brains weren't developed back at 20 and we didn't have the internet to you know really kind of get more of the truth. Honestly, there's way more lies spread by the internet than truth. But if you look hard enough, you can find truth. Well, I was going to say, there's so many lies that we're more used to the lying than the truth. So it's like we can weed we out know, the lies pretty easy. We know what it looks like. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's that's a good point. But uh, does he, do you know, with his little contraption here, Thamir, does he talk about himself like actually communicating with anybody that's dead or like anybody else who's tried it? Communicate- I, didn't look, I didn't look too much into it. So when I first heard about uh, these, when I first heard about the psych- psychoantrium was during when I was reading his criticisms. So I kind of looked back and figured out what that was, kind of read into his work a little bit. I I really don't know. I mean, obviously he believed in it and he did it himself. I'm not sure if he actually like for real ever saw dead people or not. Maybe he claimed that he did, 
but it's one of those things that he was kind of experimenting with. So he kind of reminds me, honestly, of like Stephen Greer, the UFO guy, like Stephen Greer in his early stuff was like, man, I loved it. He was really uh, impartial to everything. He kind of just kind of just let everything on the table and now when you yep. watch like his latest documentary, he's just way off the fucking deep end. All right. Well, there goes another. We lost another hero. Yeah. No risk, no reward. <laughs> now that you realize you realize that maybe your fame's starting to wane and you just yeah. kind of, you know, you might as well lean into the supporters you have. Stanton Friedman, like he was a fucking god, or Jay a- or Jay Allen Hynek, those two were like bosses in the UFO field. Unfortunately, they're both dead now, um, and now we don't really have any trailblazers in that in that aspect anymore. I don't believe. Yeah, well, supposedly disclosure's coming in a couple months. So hell yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. So getting back in 1985, another important researcher in the field. Bruce Grayson invented the Grayson NDE scale, which is a widely used test to rate the stories of near-death experiences by using a 16-question questionnaire. For this, they asked the subject about their personal experience and what that experience entails. Now, this test will give a subject a score of 0, 1 point, or 2 points for each question, depending on the answer that they give. Okay, so yeah, it's this is an interesting one because is this used to kind of weed out unbelievable ones or is this just kind of to see the level of experience that they've had, allegedly? I think it's more to see the level of experience that they've had because in order to get your experience classified as a near-death experience from this test, you need to get a poss- you need to get a 7 out of possible 32. So really it's just kind of to rate how in depth your experience was. Gotcha. So literally we could go to this guy, I could make up something and get 32 fucking points out of it and he would just kind of go along with it. Yeah, if you knew the questions and what answer to give beforehand obviously, yeah, you could give a 32. It's basically just to be more in depth. So so say he was asking you about your near-death experience. He would ask, okay, did you have an out-of-body experience at all? And if you said, yeah, I did, but all I kind of really out of body was just I heard people around me, or I kind of vaguely think I saw people around me, that might be like a one. But if you say, yes, I was out of my body, looking down at my body, everyone was working around me trying to bring me back to life, that would be a two. And if you said, I didn't have an out-of-body experience, that's a zero. So if you knew just to give the most in-depth, oh, yeah, and did you see a white light? Yes, I saw a white light, and it spoke to me, and I became immersed in the light. I became the light. That's a two. But if you just saw a white light, one. So basically, Zach Baggins would get 32 out of 32 for every single scenario. He might get close into the 60s because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I'm guessing the fucking answers he would give would be worth at least three or four. Uh, you've ne- I don't think you've ever you've ever mentioned watching um, Paranormal Caught on Camera, but there's this girl on there. I think her name's Sarah Slaughter or something like that. Some goofy hmm. made up name, but uh, 
literally every video they play on there, this lady says, oh, yeah, you know, this one time this happened to me. Every single video, even if it's fake, she's like, oh, yeah, that had that happen to me. She always has the answer for everything. She'd probably yeah. get 116 on this fucking questionnaire. Oh, yeah. I'm I don't I'm not a really big fan of those shows. All I know about Baggins is from what you and Adam and, you know, Creeper Real always say about oh, him. You so. Google him or YouTube his ass like he's the most insane person I've ever fucking met in my life. He just like nothing is not real to him. Like he's always possessed. He's always hearing <laughs> voices. He's always come on, dude. Yeah. I think you might have last time I was at your place in St. Paul, you might have showed me like a YouTube video that was yeah. basically like a compilation of his worst. Yeah, he's video. he's the worst. And the that girl's the worst, too. Um, but uh, yeah. So getting back to this, Grayson would become known as the father of near death experience research, working with other researchers to co-edit. The Handbook of Near-Death Experiences in 2009. Interesting. I like the title. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those kind of like gigantic research books. I looked it up on Amazon and it was about 70 bucks for a new copy. So. Yikes. Holy shit. You think I'd figured it'd be like a pamphlet. Yeah, it's you would think it'd be just a regular book that you could just buy in Barnes and Noble. And, you know, it's in it's in the special interest or spirituality like category. But no, it's a gigantic book. So, yeah, I've learned from doing these podcasts that sometimes books are way too expensive for no reason. Yeah, I actually, while I was in Barnes and Noble this past weekend, I kind of skimmed through the true crime section. For some reason, in this Barnes and Noble, the true crime section is only like two of those little, like the parts of the shelves. It's not very big in that Barnes and Noble. I know it's a pretty big, like there's books about shit coming out all the time. Kind of surprising. Well, I mean, if, if we're being real, the true crime people want to buy their books in secret. So they use, they buy them <laughs> online. They don't want people to think they're crazy. Yeah. Well, when I'm at work, I just have like all my true crime podcasts. I just have them blaring for everyone to hear. Whenever they start talking about people getting their heads chopped off or something, I usually like turn the, turn it down know, a little bit. Turn it down a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so another researcher, psychologist at the University of Connecticut, Dr. Kenneth Ring, actually breaks down near-death experiences into six stages. And those stages are peace, body separation, entering the darkness, seeing the light, entering the light, and return. <sighs> Sounds like getting up for work, Phil. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's fucking uh, Groundhog's Day for the working person. There Just, you go. <laughs> yeah. So the first stage of near-death experience is the sudden sense of peace that is said to wash over the body. This is, of course, after whatever tragic event is causing their NDE. Followed then by the second stage, which is the separation of the spirit or the internal self from the physical body and is usually followed by the experiencer floating over their own body, not feeling any pain or anxiety that they had just experienced, and later being able to describe the scene in which the people around them were furiously trying to save their lives. And like I mentioned with the test, not everyone has the floating over their body, you know, out-of-body experience, but it is, you know, it's pretty common. Here's the interesting thing about this. Now, obviously... I think I've heard from people who don't have like a near death experience, like maybe 
some sort of trauma or they're like crashing or something like that, experiencing, mm. feeling like they're seeing themselves from like, I guess, a third person view. Um, I th- always wondered, could this be, maybe you're not conscious, but your subconscious is aware of what's going on in relaying what's happening to you. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. It's also can happen with, I'm going to talk about it later on, but with drugs, people can have an out-of-body experience. So it might be just like some chemicals that your brain's putting out, uh, like adrenaline. That, I mean, during these tragic events, or like you just described, I'm guessing the body's just pumping the body full of whatever, adrenaline, dopamine, just something to get it through the next 25 seconds. So possibly, you know, chemicals could cause that, but I have no idea about that. It's just a guess. What if it's something like the chemicals in your brain are being released and all your senses are heightened, right? And with your senses heightened, you know, some of your senses can essentially make an image in your head. In the darkness, hearing a sound, you can almost picture what that sound is in your mind that something like that yeah and i mean i kind of had this idea a little bit you kind of mentioned like your senses and being able to like pick up things have you ever had the feeling where someone was staring at the back of your head or someone was staring at you and you kind of got this like little itch in the back of your neck and you could almost kind of like feel their eyes staring yeah. at you. Then yeah. you turn around and they're like staring, you know, obviously looking at you. Yeah, I I don't know. That's an interesting one, too. That's like a weird ability like, that humans seem to have. Um, what if now this is even crazy. I'm going down the road of Dr. Moody. But what if it was something like if if there is such a thing as like a collected conscious or like we can psychically or telepathically send people messages or something and it was like they're staring at you right they're staring at you intently and maybe they're unknowingly sending a signal to you to let you know that they're looking at you type of thing that let you know like like it's like a weird form of communication that we don't actually have any control over yeah i mean that could be it too i it's i don't know it's Suppose it all depends on what you believe in, what you think, you know, the psychic ability that people have that we don't really know about. So I don't know. I'm not saying like I believe in like the Miss Cleo psychics or whatever um, necessarily, but something I don't know. I just get this weird feeling. There's just something I I don't know. People can transmit information to each other sometimes. Because have you ever had it where you're just like sitting there and then the person right next to you are thinking like the exact same thing? Yeah. I mean, I usually chalk that up to just kind of being in the same environment. Right. If they know each other well, they might just have the same, you know, reactions to stimuli. That True. True. if, If it was two strangers sitting in a room and they had the same thought, that'd be a different thing. But if it's, you know. Yeah, I I don't know. It's a it's a weird. I mean, to be honest, that's as weird of a situation as like being able to tell somebody staring at you. It's just kind of it's kind of something we don't really understand. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking with the out of body experience of being able to describe everyone around you, even though scientists claim that when your body isn't pumping oxygen 
oxygenated blood into the brain, your brain shuts down and your brain cells are basically starting to die. You don't have like your sight. You can't hear anything. You're really, your brain's just like not working. There could be really maybe like a sixth sense gets heightened in that situation. Maybe instead of seeing all the people around you, maybe like you were feeling the people around you. That that very well could be. I I kind of like that. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I I think I believe personally it, your brain's still functioning, but you're not conscious or that you're not conscious to the point where you know it's functioning, kind of thing. That's kind of what I think. Um, like your like, like your subconscious kind of takes the main stage when yeah. you're when your main conscious you know yeah falls on their ass right basically. right yeah. so like you're hearing people and seeing them or maybe not seeing them but you're hearing them and sensing them but you're not aware you're doing it because you're dying obviously yeah well you're seeing like how daredevil sees yeah ba- i mean yeah basically that's a good point moving on out of the out-of-body experience and into really the weird stuff the third stage after the separation is finding themselves in a dark place all alone and seeing a light in the distance moving towards this light usually being met by beings that many of the experiences claim are lost loved ones uh, they also claim that they are reunited by these family and friends and some even claim that they meet a deity such as uh, the man before met Jesus. Uh, normally, this is a god from their religion that they grew up with or some other like angel or saint, something else of importance from their religious experiences. Now, after a short amount of time in this peaceful place, normally one of the entities will tell the experiencer that it is not their time yet. The person will find themselves then back in their recently resuscitated bodies amongst the living once again. Hmm. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, I don't know. I mean, the deity thing and your family kind of makes sense because that's like your most cherished memory, depending on what you believe or whatever. So that kind of makes sense. Or I don't know. I guess like you've kind of mentioned, and uh, this is getting really weird, but you you speculate that maybe UFOs don't actually look like that. They look like what your mind perceives them to look like. I guess that could be kind of the same thing, right? Yes. Yeah, we we talked about it many times on the podcast before. Yeah. It's just when like we, we were talking about the airships from the 1800s and people really didn't have an idea about like UFOs, but they did kind of know about like hot air balloons. So they kind of said, "Oh, that looks just like a hot air balloon or this weird gigantic hot airship that they've seen before." Right. You know what? This brings up a good point. I would, I know it'd be hard to pull off, but I wonder if you could go to tribes or whatever around the world that are very isolated from humanity and wouldn't have any idea about conventional UFO. And you go mm-hmm. ask them at what they've seen in the sky. And if they mention like weird shapes that don't resemble the conventional UFO, I wonder if that would be kind of a proof positive that possibly that is an explanation. Yeah. Also, there's the old, like the cave drawings from thousands of years yeah. ago. Some of the weird shit that they drew out with dudes that looked like aliens with space helmets on their, you know, with 
basically like spacesuits and gigantic helmets and these little men with giant heads or these extremely tall men that kind of looked like aliens, that kind of stuff. Or like the uh, the flying chariots thing. Yeah, the uh, yeah. like I think in India, it was the gigantic like the the giant flying cities that were firing nukes at each other in their stories. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting one. All can be seen on Ancient Aliens, which is a show <laughs> not worth watching. So so here are some of the similarities of what experiencers have claimed has happened to them while they were experiencing a near-death experience. A sense of awareness of being dead. They experienced a sense of peace, well-being, and painlessness. They also had a sense of removal from this world. Their out-of-body experience... They also had a tunnel experience or entering of darkness, rapid movement or sudden immersion in a powerful light, intense feeling of unconditional love and acceptance. They encountered beings of light, often dressed in white or something similar to what religious ideals hold, receiving a life review, uh, commonly referred to as seeing one's life flash before their eyes. They approached some kind of border or decision that they would have to make themselves of whether to go back or not. And then finally, suddenly finding themselves back inside of their physical body. Pretty wild trip right there. Yeah. I mean, those are just kind of really the most common ones, but that's really the baseline, what people think of when they hear about a near-death experience. Pretty much all of those things. Well, what I took out of that is, I guess... One positive thing you can look is if you die, it doesn't seem like it hurts too much or you at least um, experience like happiness, I guess, because there's a lot of peacefulness in that kind of right. Yeah, there's a lot of fear of death and it a lot of it is because people are worried it's going to hurt or, you know, be obviously if you are in a very painful death, then, yeah, that's going to hurt. But a According to all of this, once your spirit kind of accepts or once your brain accepts that you're going to die, you stop feeling that pain and you just kind of find yourself at peace. Well, here's, so. here's what I can say in regards to this. And obviously, this is completely different than dying. But when I was in the car crash like three, three years ago, I was knocked unconscious for quite a bit of period of time. I, I, I don't know how long, but... Essentially, the last seven minutes up until that point are completely vacated from my memory. I don't remember any of it. So maybe when you are dying, you won't even remember any of it happening, even though it could be painful and your body acts like it's painful. I mean, maybe you don't remember it. Yeah, that also could be your brain just protecting itself from tragic event or like PTSD. Yeah. Situation. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't I mean, I don't know. Maybe in the it's hard to say, but uh, but yeah, it's interesting how the brain does that. I've had some of those nights of drinking where my brain just shuts all the lights out and lets me go on autopilot, you know, like, oh, it's not going to be a good one. We're going to we're just going to wipe his memory. (laughs) Hope he doesn't remember the worst feeling in the world. Ah, man, not remembering is the worst fucking (laughs) I hate it. Waking up in the morning, just, well, yeah, I hate the the waking up in the morning, knowing that you basically 
that's the position the exact way that you lay down in. It doesn't matter where your arms, your legs are. You just wake up just there and knowing like, oh, fuck. I just know I fucked up last night. Did yeah. something. Yeah. Look at your phone and it's let the fucking reunion of yourself <laughs> begin. So there are a few different types of near-death experiences that we did mention. There are also a couple of different ones that haven't mentioned yet. Uh, really, you get different perceptions and reactions to the near-death experience other than peaceful and serene. Some of these different types are called distressing experiences. Now, an inverse near-death experience is where features usually reported in in other NDEs as pleasurable are perceived as hostile or threatening. So you like you die and you see Jeff Bezos. Yes. Instead of seeing an angel of light or your <laughs> loved family members, you see an evil fucking corporate asshole, probably reptilian. Yeah. That true, would be true. known as going to absolute fucking hell. <laughs> Or you forgot to read the fucking Amazon Prime small print and he owns your soul. Maybe that's what it is. Ooh. Yeah. I swear, any Prime members out there, once he colonizes Mars, you're going to go there as a surf. I'm pretty sure. I won't put it past him. Definitely. So there's also a void near-death experience. This is where the experiencer comes up upon a perceived vast emptiness. Is often a devastating scenario of loneliness, isolation, and sometimes annihilation. Now, in these scenarios, the experiencer is told that there was never a real life and that the void of nothingness was all that there ever actually was in the entire universe. So this is like the ultimate nihilist fantasy right here. Yes. Yep. Nothing matters. Yeah. Uh, Nothing is everything. Everything is nothing kind yeah. of situation. Yeah, yeah. this is the a real dreary one. Daria would love this near-death experience. <laughs> this would be her fucking... This might actually make her happy to wake up and not be dead. And the remaining Papa Roach fans. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and lastly, there is the least common type of distressing near-death experience, but the one that gets the most play. Now, this is where an experiencer actually goes to what their idea of a literal hell is, often falling through the earth in the deep, deep chasm, met by fiery gates, and met only by sadness on the other side of those gates, by people who look as if they're wandering in place, not knowing where they're going. Also, they will find creatures waiting to torment them for eternity. Okay, so, yeah, this is a dark one. I've seen this guy on YouTube was telling his story. I remember this, and he was saying he went to hell, and he saw the devil, and all this and that, and it was real upsetting for him, but he's a good Christian. He doesn't understand why that happened to him, and I'm just like, dude, I bet you did some fucked up shit or something. If that is your belief system, I bet you did some fucked up shit. The reason why you're such a fiery Christian is because of the fucked up shit he did in the past. <laughs> and then yeah. his subconscious is telling him, like, no, dude, no matter what you do now, you're going to hell anyway. So. Yeah, maybe it's a self self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, he believes in heaven and hell, and because he's maybe a terrible person, he went to hell. Yeah, if religion does its job correctly, it produces billions of this man. 
Right. He does everything he can to prop up the religion and then thinks he's going to hell anyway. So he has to do more. Well, I can say it's this. Never enough. This is what I can say. I guess Tucker Tucker Carlson has something to look forward to when he dies, when he goes to hell. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he'll fucking. <laughs> Maybe he'll have the void NDE. Just there's no pussy in sight. <laughs> so now that we've gone through some of the researchers of near-death experiences and what those experiencers claim to have seen during their supposed journey. Let's go through some of the possible reasons for what may be causing this phenomenon. First of all, we're going to start out with drugs. Now, some hallucinogens, like psilocybin mushrooms and ketamine, can cause hallucinations, much like those experienced during a near-death experience. Those drugs, as an explanation, do not totally add up as what all of these experiencers are claiming to have happened. Uh, obviously, ketamine and psilocybin mushrooms, obviously those drugs aren't present in the experiencers at the time. Uh, this is really unless the hallucinogen that is affecting the experiencer is DMT. I, Yeah, this is a good point. You can't just say, oh, you're just having a drug trip if you didn't do the drugs, but... They do have flashbacks, but I don't know if you could have a flashback while you're dying, I guess. I don't know. It's uh, very strange. I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty hard to say if you're seeing all this, unless you're dying of a drug overdose, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. That could be possible. If you were dying of a drug overdose, I could totally see your last trip being the big one and then being brought back to life and thinking that you actually saw God. Like that would be, <laughs> oh yeah, of course he was on drugs. That's why he saw that. But if none of that's happening, then, you yeah. know, in yeah. all of the other cases where drugs aren't involved. Right. Right. Then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I see what you're saying. So any of the Joe Rogan experience fans out there have at least heard once or twice about DMT. This is short for dimethyltryptamine it has a lot of hallucinatory effects on a human yeah now, I, don't, I don't even listen to joe rogan i know he never shuts the hell up about it definitely yeah basically at one point i think it was every other episode he was talking about dmt he would bring it up with people who had no idea weren't had no interest in drugs <laughs> so from all i've heard you and adam talking about joe rogan i'm just like I mean, I know a lot of people like him, obviously, if you're getting 20 million downloads an episode, but um, yeah, he sounds kind of annoying. Yeah, I used to listen to probably at least one of his podcasts every week, at least try to catch one episode. And then obviously, if there was someone on there that I liked, I would try to catch that one. But I don't think I've listened to it since he's moved to Texas. Yeah, he, so. it sounds like he's starting to turn into like mini Alex Jones, right? A little bit, yeah, yeah, from what I've heard. But So DMT can be smoked, snorted, or mixed with ayahuasca, which is a South American brew made out of many various different types of plants. Uh, really, depending on where you get it from, it's going to be made out of different plants, but it makes the oral consumption of DMT possible. Now, according to talktofrank.com, which is, of course, widely known as an excellent source of information yeah everybody knows about talk to frank.com definitely taking dmt can make you 
see and hear things that aren't there, otherwise known as hallucinate. Uh, this either may be a good or a bad experience. It can make you feel like time and movement is speeding up or slowing down. It can make you feel like colors and sounds are distorted. This is sometimes called visuals. It can make you have double vision. It can also make you feel like you're having an out-of-body experience. And that one's pretty important for uh, the above. Mm -hmm. Though we don't really know what the purpose of DMT serves, it is naturally made by the human body and can be detected in the blood and urine. Now, because it can protect cells during oxygen loss, DMT being flooded into the body while the brain thinks that its body is dying, really just to try to protect its own cells, could be an explanation for why people who survive death have these extremely vivid hallucinations. So DMT might just be the side effect so, of your body trying to save itself. Have they confirmed that at any point it can like mass overload in your body or whatever? That DMT can mass well, overload? Like... Okay, you said DMT is produced naturally in the human body, correct? Yes. I couldn't really find out where it comes from. They they claim that some people believe it's the pineal gland. Some people think it comes from like your pancreas or kidneys. Yeah, there, I mean, obviously there's like God knows how many fucking weird chemicals uh, the body mm. can produce. But uh, I don't know. It, it's It's hard to say. I mean, what if... Like you said, your body is dying and it gets freaked out and it overloads it with this stuff. And then you start seeing all this crazy shit. Yeah, definitely in a it's a final stand situation for your body trying to and everything about your brain is just trying to protect itself, not even your body. When your brain is trying to protect itself from sickness, it'll send out the like white cells and it. Sometimes the white cells end up killing perfectly good cells. It's just trying to preserve itself. Yeah. So basically your body is just there to serve your brain. I mean, yeah, your brain, you get a fever and it starts fucking cooking itself to try to kill it. And yep. then you start tripping balls because <laughs> your body's overheating. Yeah. Same thing happens when you're riding into Las Vegas. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Maybe it's not DMT, Phil. Maybe it's an overload of adrenochrome. Could be. Adrenochrome <laughs> comes back up. <laughs> so there's another explanation for this too. This one's a little bit less known, but I just had to bring it up. We could be traveling to the DMT dimension. Now, some users of DMT think that during the usage of the drug, their spirit is actually transported to a different dimension and that the beings that they meet on the other side of the trip are in fact real and do exist outside of our own reality. Now, if that explanation is true, then possibly, and I underline twice, possibly, during a near-death experience, the flooding of DMT to the brain could actually transport the experiencer to the DMT dimension, and that this is why their spirit is traveling and where it is traveling to. I mean, I suppose in the world of weird, that is a possibility. I don't really by it myself personally but uh i think this is kind of a weird area because when anybody is in some sort of a mind-altering state whether it be from drugs or like let's say you have a really bad fever or um i don't know whatever whatever is altering your mind from what you normally are and you 
believe that's reality now. I mean, it's kind of hard to, um, not saying that it isn't, I guess, you know, I don't want to disparage anybody's beliefs, but I think you and I share the same sentiment that we just would assume, like, if this happened to you or I, right, and we, let's say I had a really bad fever and I started seeing, like, shadow marionettes jerking each other off on the walls, when I don't have a fever again... I would be like, okay, that was just my mind boiling in my head, and that's why I saw that. Some people might be like, oh, no, those are, I don't know, whatever angels come to visit me. Those are demons that are actually there. Your brain just can't see them unless yeah. it's yeah. in that height state, something like that. Yeah, I was I was kind of thinking about like the DMT dimension, and it's like I was giving it the Neil deGrasse Tyson scale of is it 50-50 or is it not 50-50? You make fun of the DMT dimension, but some people think that the source of or where they're going to during a near-death experience is to heaven. The DMT dimension has just as much validity as heaven does or hell does. True. So really, it belongs on this list just because heaven and hell are obviously on this list. So. I think. Well, I think that brings the good point that it's always in the eye of the beholder, right? Yep, definitely. It's always a... Uh, whatever your personal feelings about it are. Yeah. If you believe in the DMT dimension more than heaven or hell, you're obviously going to give this one more credence. Right. So. Exactly. So next up is the loss of oxygenated blood to the brain. Now, I mentioned this a little bit before, but this is actually kind of old thought of what was actually happening to a person during a near-death experience. Now, this idea is where there is a substantial loss of blood traveling to the brain. The dying person would actually experience hallucinations from the beginnings of the decay of the brain matter. This doesn't really make sense, though, as when the brain doesn't have that oxygenated blood that it so crucially needs, the brain activity actually shuts down as the cells begin to die. And it, this really doesn't explain how the, the experiencer can describe what was happening during the attempts to save their lives. Right. Yeah, this is a tricky one because, I I mean, obviously not having oxygen is going to cause you to not run properly. But then again, yeah, like you said, knowing what's going on while you're not conscious, that's kind of uh, would it make sense. Yeah, that is it's kind of the weird thing, because this uh, this this answer at the same time makes the most sense but sadly makes the least amount of sense. Right. So it's it's a really easy thing in the past for just to say, oh yeah, you were just didn't have blood going to your brain and you started to hallucinate. Well, it's easy to say, but really it doesn't really explain why you're seeing all these crazy things if your brain is shutting down. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So the next one, and this is probably the easiest one to wrap your mind around. They're full of shit and they're just making it all up. Now, this is pretty self-explanatory. The experiencer really is just claiming that they are having these voyages to the great beyond, really just to feel special or possibly to affirm their own innate beliefs in the afterlife and or their preferred religion. Yep. Yep. That's right. I I mean, obviously, I don't know if I, I would say some people have genuine experiences, but there's definitely people who... um. <laughs> Are lying about it as well. Yeah. I mean, it. We, we talk about it with the UFO sightings all the time. You get a couple of fake people out there 
making up their stories. It comes out as fake or fraudulent, or maybe there was a hoax. And then it muddies the water for everyone who's actually having like a real UFO experience. I imagine the same thing would happen with the near death experience. Right. You have all of these people who have, you have all these people who have real experiences. And then there's a couple of fakes who just want to feel special. They want to join the club, but it's not happening to them. So they make it up and then it muddies the water for everyone else. Now everyone else looks like a fraud. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really hate that that exists, but sadly, you're never going to change humans. I yeah, mean, to they, like uh, acting this way. They handed out achievement medals on sports day. So that's kind of what happens. <laughs> they're just, they're thirsty for some more gold, some more metal. True. Uh, the next up, uh, the hardest one, this is actually really happening to them. This really just kind of is what it basically sounds like. They are actually going to a real afterlife that they are traveling back from when their body is resuscitated, going to what their interpretation of heaven is. Maybe heaven is seen as, for everyone who has these experiences, the afterlife it looks a little bit different. Possibly everyone's just perceiving it as different because they're, the things that they learned and saw and reacted to and their loved ones, everything, everything about their life kind of melded together to make heaven. So the big problem with that is if there is an afterlife, an actual kind of either dimension universe that we go to some kind of anything, even if it's just going into the light, really, you would think that everyone who nearly dies and then comes back from almost death would have one of these near death experiences of where they were going to, but not everyone does. There's only a very small percentage of the people who nearly die who have near-death experiences. If this was a real afterlife that we could go to, somewhere where we could travel back from, uh, actually having the out-of-body experience, our spirit leaving our body, going through the tunnel to the light, everyone should experience it. Even if they're going to the void, or going to hell, or going to heaven. It doesn't matter. Everyone should go somewhere, but not everyone has these experiences. Yeah, it's kind of um, everybody has a unique experience in some sense. There might be some similarities, but there's a lot of differences. Yeah. I mean, the one kind of saving grace is, like you were saying with your accident, you don't remember being like that. You said you had minutes where it's just completely blank. You have no memory of it. Perhaps in that moment, maybe you did have something, but your brain just just like when you wake up from a dream. Your brain just kind of deleted it, like auto-delete immediately Yeah. after you come back to your senses or come wake back up or come back, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, I don't know. Brain's, uh, the brain's powerful and very weird thing. Definitely. And we, I mean, we understand more and more every single year, every single day, it seems like now, but there's still so much of it we don't understand. True, so. true. So no matter the explanation... These trips to the great beyond seem real to the men and women who have experienced them. And many people come back from these near-death experiences with a sense of loss from having to leave such a peaceful and loving place, not to mention the doctors, friends, and family members who simply do not believe what their loved one or patient is telling them. Also, like we mentioned before, they could have possible PTSD from their injuries that resulted in their near death. 
One article that I was reading gave some advice on how doctors and caretakers and family members can deal with someone who has had a near-death experience. The article says really just to listen to the person's story, take the story seriously. Don't make them feel like they're in some way mentally damaged because they had this experience or are telling you this experience. Uh, Try to steer them towards maybe a support group for survivors. Uh, There are even support groups for people who have had near-death experiences now. Kind of a place where they could go tell their story, be listened to, listen to other people's stories, and not feel like alone in this. Not feel like they are the only weirdo, you know, in the universe who had one of these. Right. And I think that's excellent advice. I mean, especially if you're a caretaker. I mean, now that I'm kind of involved and work in the uh, medical community, it's a... You know, you realize how important it is to just kind of listen to people regardless of how wild it might seem. And I'm pretty confident a lot of the nurses and doctors would, you know, listen to them. Maybe not tell them, hey, you're just nuts. You just died, whatever. You know, maybe they just want to be heard. Yeah, especially nowadays, I imagine you would listen. The The bedside manner has improved. Uh, 40, 50 years ago, I highly doubt yeah, that a doctor yeah. would sit there and listen to your story. Absolutely. Uh, but I really wanted to know, all of that said, all of those examples given, kind of like, what do you, what's your Neil deGrasse Tyson 50-50? Like, what do you think about all of these little explanations? Um, you know what? This is uh, my personal feeling. I don't don't want to disparage anybody who you know believes in X, Y, and Z in regards to this. But all the things that I've heard about near death experiences and people's near death experiences, I personally believe that when you are dying, your brain is going in going fucking haywire. Like it's just it's a literal firestone tire. It's just exploding up there and. It's just it's causing so much chaos and release of chemicals that it's just putting you into, I guess, a passive uh, state trying to relax you kind of knowing that you're about to die. And it's just yeah. kind of creating all these weird sensations. You know, it a part of me kind of thinks back to there are certain people, right, like they knew a language, say, when they're a little kid and then they kind of forgot it as they grew up. And then when they're dying, all of a sudden they're magically speaking like Spanish or German or whatever. To me, that just yells like that's someone's subconscious just unloading information as it's dying. That's been buried deep in somebody's head. So kind of when you're dying, I think personally, that's kind of just what's happening. Your brain's just kind of going into Chernobyl nuclear meltdown mode. Factory reset. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I think they're experiencing. I don't know for sure, but that's, you know, that's hard to say because technically I view myself as an atheist and, uh, that just kind of means, you know, I don't really think there's a heaven and hell personally, but who am I to say? I I don't have the answer and technically nobody has the goddamn answer. Um, how about you, Phil? What do you think? I mean, I'm pretty close to what, like you believe on, it's just your brain kind of buttering you up for, the big transition that's about to happen. The transition is the earth is going to go on without <laughs> your brain any longer. You turn so, into worm dirt. Yeah. You're, you're moving on to the next stage, which is nothing left. But I also kind of like how 
like the explanation you used with the drugs, your brain just pumping in chemicals, kind of your brain just throwing whatever it has against the wall, but in an effort to save you, not really only just buttering you up for the great beyond, but actually trying to preserve itself and its cells in case you're saved last minute, in case safety, you know, in case people bring you back to the safety of a hospital or, you know, resuscitate you. Um, If that's not the case, then I hope it's the DMT dimension. I hope it's real. And I hope that the beans that people are actually meeting there, you know, are wherever they're at having a great time. And that's where we go when we die. We just, you know, really cool, trippy place. So really nice place for everybody. uh, One final thing here that you actually just brought up. Yeah. What if the brain is going into self-preserve mode and it's trying to calm your body down? Because obviously there's things like shock or a heart attack or things like that. Like you got to try to calm down so you don't. I guess, have those experiences, if that makes sense. Well, if you did have some kind of accident or something, maybe like there's, there's some people who had a near death experience after like, say a a bear attack. There was one that I read about where this woman had been mauled by a bear. Imagine how much adrenaline is pumping through your body after that attack. You also don't want the adrenaline to harm yourself while it's trying to heal itself. So maybe some of those chemicals are, you know, lowering the amount of all of this fucking in a man, it's, you know, testosterone or it's adrenaline, whatnot. Maybe your body's just trying to bring those levels down so you don't go into shock or have a fucking stroke or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I always forget about the stroke. That's a very good point there, Phil. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's fun to talk about. It's obviously a giant mystery that nobody can confidently have an answer to. Um, I, like we said, we, we all have to face it eventually and we'll, I guess, find out then what happens. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, yeah, uh, excellent episode, by the way, Phil. Uh, I just want to, we, we, we need to thank some folks here. Uh, our Patreon is up and running. We currently now have, I believe, eight episodes of the Off the Record series, which is just basically Phil and I bullshitting. So you can, uh... For just $2 and up, you can subscribe to that and uh, enjoy the content. We need to thank a few individuals who have signed up recently. We need to thank Robert and Margaret. Thank you so much for signing up. I hope you're enjoying Phil and I's little banter sessions. They can range in, God, I don't know. We talk about so many different subjects. I I couldn't even tell you what we talk about. I always forget, but uh, we're trying Impossible to, to say. Yeah, we're trying to get those out once a week. Um it's kind of proved to be a little tough recently. There's kind of a lot going on in life, but we're we're trying our hardest to get that done. Um, we'll probably have one up by next week. I'm I'm sure of it. Uh, otherwise, uh, thank you guys so much. If you if you love the show and you're like, hey, I want to throw these guys a few bucks, log on to Patreon.com/slash Subliminal Deception. It'll take you right there. If that's not working for you. All you got to do, go to subliminaldeception.com, and there's a direct link that will take you to our Patreon site, and you can sign up. I know Patreon search engine's a little bit finicky, to say the least, but uh, everybody experiences problems with that goddamn website, but uh, it's the best available to use. So thank you so much for those who have chosen to support us, and we hope uh, to see more supporters out there. Otherwise, uh, if somebody wants to reach out to us, Phil, where can they do that? They can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, gotten a few 
emails in the past week. Uh, talked to a couple of people. Been really good to hear from you guys. And probably the best way to get a hold of us, though, is still on Instagram, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. Uh, heard from a lot of people since the Christmas break. So thanks for all the well wishes, guys. Uh, if you want to get a hold of myself or Cody individually, my Instagram account is sdpodphil. I'm catching up with some people's messages. Thanks for all of those. It's been months since I've had it like really up and going. So bear with me. Cody, you got one? Yeah, follow my personal Instagram at Cody'sabub. Uh, chat with me. Look at my meme as I post and all that fun stuff. The last thing we need you guys to do is if you are an iTunes listener, please leave the show five-star review, preferably written. Doesn't matter what you say. You could say, fuck you guys, we hate you. Just make sure it's five stars. If you're a Spotify user, all you got to do is hit that follow button, and it apparently pumps you up in the rating. So thank you so much to everybody who has done that. If you haven't, please do that. Otherwise, uh, Phil, excellent episode. It is a controversial subject, but I think it is something that we need to talk about. Otherwise, guys, we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.